Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm the discipleship pastor here at New Life, and we are so excited that you're here to join us. If you're here for the first time with us, we prayed for you. We've thought about you. We've prepared for you. We're excited that you're here. If there's anything that we do here that seems strange to you or odd or you don't know why we do it, don't be afraid to pull somebody aside who's serving this morning and ask them. We're here to answer your questions. We're here to make sure that you have a great time with us this morning. We're just excited that you decided to be here. In this uh, closing of this series, we're closing out a series called Get a Grip. And this has been a really impactful series. We've been looking at a really large picture overview of all of the Bible. And over the past month, Pastor Chris has done an incredible job of taking us through each book of the Bible, talking about the major themes in each section of Scripture, with the exception of the epistles, which is what we are going to talk about today. Now, I don't want to overlook the fact that today is Palm Sunday, although we we don't have palms up here, so maybe if you didn't realize it was Palm Sunday. I'd never needed to say it. You would have went home and never known. Um, But today, this is Palm Sunday, and and usually we'd be talking about the triumphant entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. But we're not going to talk about that today because we are going to be focusing our time in the letters, uh, the epistles that make up the bulk of the New Testament as we close out this series. So this morning, I'm going to be taking a look at those letters, those epistles. We're going to be looking at kind of a broad overview of them and looking at some principles uh, in each one of them quickly, briefly. And then we're going to look at one truth that I believe transcends time. I know transcends time that was true for the early church that is continuing to be true for us today. But before we dive into that, let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity that we have just to be here, to be in your presence, to worship you. I pray that you would speak through me, that you would open up minds and hearts, Lord, to your word. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what are, what are the epistles? What, really, what are they, right? They're, they make up the bulk of the New Testament. They're a grouping of letters. There's 21 of them, 21 letters that were written by six different People. Okay, nine of those letters were written by a man named Paul to specific churches. Then four more were written by that same man, Paul, to individual people. Three were written by a man named John, and two were written by a man named Peter, who were both disciples of Jesus. Then there was one written by a guy named James, and another one by a guy named Jude, who were brothers of Jesus. And finally, the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. Okay, we we don't know the author of the book of Hebrews. There's some speculation, but nobody really knows exactly who wrote that particular book. And so as we look at all of these different books, we don't have time to dive into them. There's too much in all of these scriptures for us to look. Oftentimes over the summer, which we're not doing it this summer, but a lot of times over the summer, we'll actually look at just one of those letters that was written, and we'll take it verse by verse for 12 weeks all summer long. So we don't have time to go in depth. It would take years of sermons for us to go in depth about each of these things. But I wanted to talk about some similarities and some principles in many of them. And we're going to actually spend our time this morning focusing on the nine letters that Paul wrote to specific churches. So I know there are some others in there 
there, and I encourage you, go and explore them, read them on your own, but we're going to focus in on those nine. And one of the things that we see, it's actually three things that we see reoccurring over and over again in Paul's letters, the nine letters that he wrote to specific churches, is this. The first thing is that Paul seeks to encourage the church. The second, that Paul seeks to correct the church And the third, to direct the church. So the first, to encourage. The second, to correct. And the third, to direct. And the first thing that we're going to spend time on, and really the only thing out of those three parts, is the correct part this morning. We're going to look at the first church, the letters that Paul wrote to those churches, and then we're we're going to take a look at some of the things that they maybe had not been doing perfectly. Some of the things that they had not been doing well. So Paul was a man who traveled from place to place planting churches. He would go to a new city and he would plant a church there. And then after a couple of years, often he would leave and go plant another church. We have reason to believe there's many churches that he planted before he started writing letters. And there may be many churches that he planted that we don't even know about, but we know about at least a handful of them because he wrote back to them. So let's look at what those individual letters are. Are. So the first letter, and I'm going to keep my notes with me this morning. I usually never do this. I usually tear them up before I get on stage. But there's some stuff in here that's important that I, I don't want to miss or mess up. So the first letter was written to the Romans, the church in Rome. And in this letter, it's unique because it's the only letter that Paul writes to a group of people that he has not yet met. He didn't plant this church, but he's writing to them because he hears about an issue, a problem that they have. Keep in mind, he has encouraged these churches as well. But one of the problems that the Roman church was running into is they were very intelligent. They had grasped Jesus intellectually, but they had not yet let their lives be transformed. They had accepted the theology of Jesus, but it hadn't affected the way that they lived. They were living the same way. So they had accepted Jesus in their mind, but he hadn't yet moved to their heart. Perhaps you have been to a church like that before. Next was two letters that he wrote to a church in a place called Corinth, an area that was just full of nasty, nasty stuff known for kind of the nasty way of living of its time. And in this church in Corinth, the first letter he writes about division that he's seeing inside of the church. And the second letter, he actually spends almost entire time defending his own personal character because despite helping plant that church and start that church, they had turned against their leadership. The next was a letter to the Galatians. And Paul says that they needed to abandon old traditions that they were following that had nothing to do with Jesus. See, there was a group of people who had come in that were called the Judaizers. And they had turned the people inside this church away from the love and the truth of Jesus onto legalism and self-righteousness. And I don't know about you, but I've experienced that legalism and self-righteousness in a few churches myself. Then Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and in Ephesus, they were dealing with disunity, gossip, criticism, jealousy, anger, bitterness. I think we can all relate to having been to or been in a church or part of a church that suffered from many of those things. Then to the Philippians, Paul writes to encourage them because they are enduring persecution. But as they're enduring persecution and encouraging them, he's also challenging them because they've suffered from feelings of being defeated and divided and discouraged. He writes a letter to a group of people in Colossae, and Paul tells them to flee from self-righteousness, legalism, asceticism, mysticism. Finally, he writes a letter to a group of people in a place called Thessalonica, and Paul encourages them while they are in the middle of intense persecution 
But he also reprimands them because they become lazy. In the midst of the intense persecution that they were undergoing, they had stopped evangelizing. They had stopped telling people about Jesus in fear of persecution, but also because they believed that Jesus was going to return quickly. Jesus said he'd return soon, and soon in his scope is very different than soon in our scope. So Paul reprimands them, encouraging them to continue evangelizing, to continue telling people about Jesus. Now, when we look at some of the issues and some of the problems that these church faced, most of us can probably relate to them in some way. Many of us have been in churches that deal with these same issues. Many of us have left churches that have dealt with these issues. Over the last 17 years of New Life's existence, some, some of these things, maybe many of these things, have been things that we have fought against and battled against in order to help keep our church healthy. So my real question for us this morning is, why are we here? Why are we here? If the first century century church dealt with so much garbage, if they dealt with bitterness, and if they dealt with discouragement, if they dealt with division, if they had overthrown or turned against their leadership, if they had dealt with legalism and mysticism, if all of these things were part of the first century church, why are we here today? We see churches in our community shut their doors never to be opened again because of these exact things all the time right here in western Pennsylvania. We see churches shut their doors and get bought out and and they become breweries and they become daycares and they become photography studios and music venues. I've been to churches that used to be churches. It used to be a place where God's people gathered and now is used for something completely secular. So why are we here? If the first century church didn't have it all together, and I always thought they did. When I was growing up, I thought, man, the first century church had all their ducks in line, man. They knew what they were doing. But as I read the epistles and I read these letters that Paul wrote to the churches, I realized that they didn't have it all together. In fact, oftentimes they were super messed up. So what gives? What makes them different? Why did they not only survive, but amidst intense persecution, problems with division, and problems of all other sorts, did they thrive? As a product of their testimony, the church has grown, and the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached in millions of churches ever since. What was the difference? Well, I'll give you a clue. The difference wasn't us. People are people, and the people then had problems just the same as we have problems today. No, no, no. The difference is yelled out in all of the epistles. It flows throughout all of them. The difference in the first church, what made them different from every other group, was the power of the Holy Spirit. That is actually part of our title today. Our title today is people plus the Holy Spirit equals the church, but people minus the Holy Spirit equals anything but the church. People plus the Holy Spirit equals the church, and people minus the Holy Spirit equals anything but the church. See, as I was growing up, I was taught the church is not the building, it's the people. And that was helpful for me as a child. It helped me to realize it was silly for us to argue about the color of paint on the walls or whatever else, the silly things that we were arguing about when it came to the structure. But it wasn't entirely true. It was true, but not entirely true. Because the church is partially made up of people, but quite frankly, so is the Elks Club and karate classes, so is Boy Scouts, so is Target. They're all partially made up of people. No, the thing that makes the church different isn't the people, it's the power of the Holy Spirit with the people. That's what makes the church unique. That's what makes the church special. In fact, that's our take-home point today. And our take-home point is the one point that I'm going to seek to make that we can take home with us, you and I both can take home with us and live out in the coming week, and it's this. The Holy Spirit is the fuel for every church, 
thought about calling it the secret sauce, special ingredient, right? I feel like when you say secret sauce, you have to swing your hips at least a little bit, right? There's a little hip swing with secret sauce, right? But no, it's, it's the fuel of every church. The Holy Spirit is what makes us unique. We are not special. The children of, we are children of God. That does make us significant, but we're dealing with the same problems that they dealt with 2,000 years ago. We've just wrapped them up a little differently. We've presented them with new technology. We've done things a little different to make them look new, but there's really nothing new that's under the sun. The same problems that hurt the church back then are the same problems that threaten to hurt the church today. So what is it that brings difference. What does the Holy Spirit do? Because it's great to say that us plus the Holy Spirit equals the church, but what does the Holy Spirit bring to the table? We know what we bring. We bring bitterness and jealousy, self-centeredness. We bring division. We bring all sorts of issues, and we pile them all up when we come inside the building. We put on a good face oftentimes, and we put on the Christian mask, and sometimes we come in, and we act like we have our stuff together, but we bring a heap of trash with us. So what does the Holy Spirit bring? What does he bring that makes it work? Well, that comes to us from our key scripture today, which is from 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy is a letter that Paul wrote to an individual person. His name, of course, was Timothy. And it was a person that uh, Paul was mentoring. He was a young man. And we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. This is going to be our key scripture for today. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. But of power, love, and self-discipline. These are the three things that we're going to focus on for the remainder of today. Power, love, and self-discipline. I'm also going to take some time to look at what the devil seeks to do to you individually and to us as a church. And as we go through that together, we're going to compare what the Holy Spirit brings to the table and what the devil threatens us with. And as we do that together, we are going to be looking at some various passages from the epistles, but we're also going to be looking at some passages from the Gospels and one passage from the book of Genesis. Why is that? Because Pastor Chris has already covered Genesis and the Gospels. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They cover the story, life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Well, the reason that we're going to look at that is because you can't look at the first century church without talking about the story of Jesus, because that's what they were all about. And, and you also can't look at sin, which we're going to look at today, without talking about why it's there, which is going to come from the early stages of the book of Genesis. So we're going to look at those passages, but also some from the epistles. So I want to tell you a little story about Jesus. So Jesus, whenever he was on the earth, he told a story. And in this story, he used the metaphor of a pen, a sheep pen in sheep. And in the metaphor, the sheep were us. We were the sheep, and he was the gate to the sheep pen. And when he told this story, this parable, he said that we were free to move in and out with safety through him who is the gate. But then he warned us. He said that there would be a thief. And that thief has three intentions. That thief is Satan or the devil. And he has three intentions for our life that look very different from the things that the Holy Spirit blesses us with or grants us, gives us. And it captures really well in John 10, verse 10. It says this, the thief comes only to kill only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life to the full. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So we're going to spend the remainder of our time focusing on these three things alongside the three things the Holy Spirit gives us. So the three things the Holy Spirit grants us is power, love, and self-discipline. The devil threatens us by stealing from us, killing us, 
and destroying us. And we're going to look at how those things, how the devil has those intentions for your life, but the Holy Spirit is giving you everything you need in Jesus, giving you everything you need to combat the, the the schemes of the devil. And then we're going to look at the church corporately. We're going to look at what we've been told to be in three key passages, two from the teachings of Jesus, one from the teachings of Paul when he wrote to the Corinthians. And we're going to look at how the devil schemes to destroy those things inside of our church, but the Holy Spirit has given us exactly what we need to overcome the devil's plans for us corporately as a church as well as us personally. So let's start from the very beginning. The Holy Spirit gives us power. The devil threatens us with theft. The Holy Spirit gives us power. The devil threatens to steal from us. In your own life, the devil will steal anything that you are willing to let him have. He wants every good thing that you have. The devil wants your hope. The devil wants your compassion. The devil wants your faith. The devil wants your grace. The devil wants your salvation. The devil wants your prosperity. The devil desires your future. He wants you to believe that all of those things belong to him. And if you're here today and you have ever felt destitute, if you've ever felt like you were at the end of yourself, if you've ever felt like you had no future, if you've ever been hopeless, if your faith has ever faltered, if you've ever been in an intense season of doubt, if everything has ever looked dark and you didn't know how there would ever be light in your life again, then I have an encouragement for you today because that was never God's plan for your life. In fact, the word of God says that the God, the word of God says that he has had intentions to prosper you and to give give you a future. He's had intentions to prosper you and give you a future. Those things being stolen from you have always been the plan of Satan and have never been the plan of your Father in heaven. Satan wants you to believe that not only do you not deserve those things, those good things that he wants to take from you, but he wants you to believe the lie, the deceit, that those things truthfully belong to to him. But if you are in Jesus today and you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then I have a word of encouragement for you. He, the devil, wants to take your hope, but your hope is in the victorious right hand of Jesus Christ. He wants your faith, but your faith is in a spotless lamb. The devil wants to leave you bitter, but you can forgive any hurt after experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus. He wants your future, but your future is secure in the cross. He wants your prosperity, but your prosperity is not in this world, but it's in a place where moth and rust cannot destroy and the thief cannot break in and steal. He wants you to feel defeated, but our victorious Savior has already crushed his head. There is nothing of value the devil can take from you once you're in Jesus Christ. There is nothing of value that the devil can take from you once you are in Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Because the Holy Spirit has given us power. It's this other parable, this story that Jesus used to teach people. And at the time, he was casting a demon out of someone. And in this story, he was the powerful man going in and tying up and taking away the root of Satan in someone's life. But I think this can be true, flipped the other way, with Satan attacking us. It said this in Luke chapter 11. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But... When somebody stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. The devil wants to tie you up and take away anything good that you have. But when we have the Holy Spirit, we're given power. 
with the Holy Spirit, we have no reason to fear the theft of the devil. But without the Holy Spirit, that fear is very real because we are not strong on our own. There's nothing that we have on our own that can resist the plans of the devil to steal from us. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, he is much stronger than us. And he's fully capable of coming into our home, tying us up, and robbing us blind. And he wants to do that. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can cling to with the strength and power that he gives us every good thing that is already secured for us in Jesus Christ. When we look at the church, and Matthew 16 captures this really well, we want to look at how the, what the plan of the church was and then also what the Holy Spirit gives us in power. So in Matthew chapter 16, Peter is given a command and a picture of what the church would be like and what it would do. And I love this image. It says this, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Catch this. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is clear that the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome his church. In the American church, we can oftentimes feel like we're on the defense of a lot. We can feel like we're sort of backpedaling, like we're trying to protect ourselves. In fact, in the American church, we've become so used to being on the defensive that we miss one central truth in this passage, and that is that gates are not used for offense. In this passage, we're not looking at the gates of heaven being assaulted by the hordes of hell. No, instead, we're looking at the gates of hell being conquered and trampled by the church. And gates are not used for offense. That means we are on the offense and hell is on the defense. So why does hell have gates? What's hell trying to protect? What's behind the gates? What does hell have of value? The only thing that hell really has. It's not a lake of fire. Hell has souls. Hell has souls. And the gates are in place to keep the church from reaching souls. But Jesus has been very clear that when his church properly armed goes to battle against the gates of hell, that we can stomp down those gates that are preventing a soul from going to heaven one day in every individual person's life because the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. This is such a cool image to me, and one of the coolest images I've seen this depicted is in one of my favorite movies. I love The Lord of the Rings. I have since I was a child. And in The Lord of the Rings, at the very end of the third movie, The Return of the King, Gandalf and Aragorn and the heroes of Middle-earth march out to the gates of Mordor for one final assault. And it begins to look bad. The endless hordes of Mordor are pouring out from beyond the gates, and it looks like our heroes are going to be beaten. It looks like all hope is lost. It looks like we're on the edge of giving up. They're surrounded by the forces of Mordor. And then the creature Gollum falls into the lake of fire at the bottom of Mount Doom with the ring of power in hand and the, the power of the evil Lord Sauron is broken and the hordes of Mordor retreat and the gates come crumbling down. It's such a powerful image because sometimes as the church, we can feel defeated. We can feel defeated. 
as though there's nothing that we have left to give. We can feel like we're defending ourselves. We can feel like the odds are stacked against us. We can feel like we're surrounded by the enemy in the culture and the world that we live in. But the Holy Spirit tells us, and Jesus tells us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. Will never prevail His church will knock down the gates and they will plunder the souls from the depths of hell because that's all hell has is souls. So what does it look like? It's great to say the Holy Spirit gives us power, but practically, what does it look like? It's right here. It's this book. We call it the Bible. It's right here. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, I was trying to read it upside down. In the book of Ephesians, The writer tells us that there's this thing called the armor of God. And in his description of the armor of God, there's only one weapon. It's the sword of the spirit that is the word of God. Right here. It's the Bible. It's the only weapon we have. This is the only tool that you have to take back souls. And in a culture of increasing biblical illiteracy, we are filling churches full of people who want to go on the offense and have no weapon. They want to go on the offense, and they have no weapon. Your faith is fantastic at putting out flaming arrows. Your truth, the truth that you know, is fantastic for holding up your belt. But if you want to knock down the gates of hell, and if you want to save souls, you're going to need this book. And you're going to need the diligence to read it, and to study it, and then to live by it. That's what this series is really all about. We are arming God's people. Next, we see that the Holy Spirit gives us love and the devil threatens us with death. The devil wants to see every curse that God has placed on humanity come into full realization in your life personally. He wants to see every curse that God has placed on humanity come into full realization in your life personally. Let me unpack that for you. Sometimes we believe the devil is responsible for death, and although he did play a role, the the truth is that the root of death has always been found in us. When man sinned, everything fell apart. Everything that was good or perfect became imperfect. Everything that was everlasting had to come to an end. And we received a curse from God as a product of our sin from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at it together. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life to eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Paul captures this in a more succinct, a smaller way, but it's still a powerful way when he says this in the book of Romans, for the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. The devil wants you to die. He wants to see every living thing Die and die for eternity in hell. He wants to see you suffer and every piece of creation suffer the full consequence for our sin. But the Holy Spirit and God the Father, Jesus Christ, has replaced your curse with his love. He's replaced your curse with his love. We see that most clearly in John chapter 3, verse 16. Maybe one of the most famous passages, the most well-known passages in all of God's word. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
where the devil offers us death and desires to keep us from salvation. God offers us love, and through that love, he offers us the opportunity for a new life. While the devil wants to steal and lock away every soul that he can in the gates of hell, God has offered you an opportunity for new life. There's no reason to die anymore because we've been offered everlasting life through the love of the Father. And then when we receive that new life and we receive the love of the Father Father through Jesus Christ, we also get the Holy Spirit. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, not only has God given us love and through love a new life, but the Holy Spirit pours out an abundance of love. The Holy Spirit pulls out an abundance of love so that you may offer everyone you know new life. It goes back, right? We receive the love of God, and through receiving the love of God, we're given a new life. Then we receive the Holy Spirit. The love is poured out in us in abundance in such a way that we can then pour that love out to others so that they may also receive a new life. It goes like that, over and over. So the God has given us an abundance of love. As the church, the devil will do everything he can to see the church shut its doors. He desires to kill every church, every movement, every revival. He wants to squelch every group of people empowered by the Holy Spirit. And normally, he does that through the demonic force of division. The Holy Spirit... Oops, that's the wrong one. The, if the devil can divide the church, he can often conquer the church. If the devil can divide the church, he can often conquer the church. The devil seeks to kill this church. He doesn't want it to persist. He wants to see anything happen in this building except what's happening. And his number one tool for killing it is division. But that was never Jesus' desire for his church. In fact, through the power of love and the Holy Spirit, he gave us exactly what we need to counter division. And we see that in John 13. It says this, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is our source of identity. And we will be identified and unified by the way that we love one another and the way that we love those in the world around us. When we love one another, it's very hard to be divided. I know that because Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love is patient and kind, it's not self-seeking, it doesn't boast, it always protects, it always hopes, it perseveres. Our greatest tool against division in our church and the plans of the devil to kill our church is to love one another. Finally, in 2 Timothy, we see that God offers us self-discipline and the devil threatens us with destruction. Now, this one I had a hard time with. I didn't really understand it. I couldn't really see how self-discipline was a good tool against destruction. And part of that is because I'm not the most self-disciplined person. I know that the Holy Spirit has given me these things, but I've always sort of experienced power and love more than I've experienced self-discipline. I'm a little free-spirited. I kind of like to be spontaneous. I don't really like a schedule. It's one of the things that makes me love ministry. There's really rarely two days that are the same. Each day comes with its own set of challenges and difficulties, sometimes victories, sometimes defeats. But it's always new. It's always different. So I had a really hard time fully grasping or understanding what it meant when we were looking at this and seeing that maybe the Holy Spirit has given us self-discipline, but the devil threatens us with destruction. Until 
I read this passage in the book of Hebrews about running a race. It says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners, so that you will not grow weary, so that you would not lose heart. The Apostle Paul speaks in a very similar way when he writes to the Corinthians. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly, and I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body, and I make it my slave, that after I have preached to others, I myself will be not be disqualified for the prize. The devil wants to destroy your prize. He wants you to become complacent. He wants you to be apathetic and comfortable. He wants you to give in to your temptations, turn a blind eye to injustice, deny your calling, neglect the poor, the widow, and the orphan. He wants you to choose convenience over righteousness. He wants you to choose convenience over righteousness. I'm going to say it one more time. He wants you to choose convenience over righteousness. He wants you to live a life that is aimless and without purpose. He wants you to be destroyed by feelings of inadequacy and fear. The Holy Spirit instead offers you the ability to find freedom and ability in self-discipline. See, sometimes we think that self-discipline leads us to less freedom, but self-discipline always leads us, discipline in general, will always lead us to more freedom and new ability. Let me unpack that for you. Several years ago, I tried to learn how to play piano, and as it turns out, I'm terrible at it, and I quit. Um, I did not have the self-discipline required to make it very far. My hands can't do two different things at once. Can't just can't figure it out. Anyway, if you decided today that you wanted to learn how to play piano, you would have to start with the self-discipline of practicing every day, maybe going to lessons every week. You might have to discipline your spending because you might need to buy a piano to have at your own home so that you could play at home and practice at home. But if you started that self-discipline and you were consistent in it, you would be gifted with new ability and the ability to play music, but you'd also be gifted with freedom and the opportunity to go off the music, to write your own music, to fill your home with music. It's the same if you were trying to run a race or a marathon. At first glance, I thought, no, I'm not running a marathon today. And maybe you weren't either. Maybe you are, and that's cool, but you weren't at one time. But if you wanted to run a marathon, you would have to start training for that. And as you trained and you practiced the self-discipline of running every day, you would be granted with new ability in the form of being able to run a marathon, but you'd also be granted with new freedom in the chance to do things that you were never able to do before. The same is true in our walk with Jesus Christ. As we pray daily and read our Bibles daily, as we relate to Jesus every day, as we communicate with the Holy Spirit and relate to him, as we do those things and we start those disciplines, we're gifted with new ability in the form of spiritual maturity, but we're also gifted with new freedom in the capability to call up and remember and recall the things of God in moments that it's most important to bring about life change in ourselves and the people that we encounter. Self-discipline is the tool to free us from every plan and plot of sin that the devil has in our life. If you're here today and you can feel the chains of sin on your heart, if you can feel it on your soul, 
If you feel like you can't be free, if you feel like it's always going to be part of me, if you feel like you can't give it up or you can't walk away, that you'll never get it right, let me tell you today, the Holy Spirit has given you the self-discipline to run the race marked out for you. You have been given everything you need to do exactly what God has called you to do. You have every resource in your possession. You have every bit of time that you need. You have every skill, ability, everything that you need to live out what God's call is on your life today. You have it today. Our God is a God of limitless resources. He paves his streets in gold. He builds his walls with gemstones. He's a God that doesn't worry about time because he's infinite. He didn't have a beginning. He never will have an end. Our God is not worried about our time or our resources because he's given us everything we need to run the race with self-discipline that he's marked out for us. This mirrors in the life of the church because Paul actually wrote once again to the Corinthians about the church and how it's a body and how we need discipline as well. Let's look at it. It says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. And we were all given that one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. We have many parts here at New Life, as a church, and you play a vital role in that. There are things that you can do here that no one else can do. And if you don't do them, then there are things in this community that this church can do that no one else can do that we won't be able to do. You play a vital role in this church. God has placed you here for a reason, not by accident, on purpose. And if this is your first time here, you are here on purpose. He wrote these days in his book well before they came to pass. He has intentions for you here. And he wants you to live as part of the body. More than that, the church has to learn the same thing. As a body, we have to learn to be disciplined, to serve the purposes that we were created for, to not miss out on our mission, because the kingdom of God holds, hangs in the balance. This church has been given the most important mission in all of creation, every church, the big church, the big C. We have been given the most important mission in all of creation. And if we are not disciplined, we will miss it. Hear this, because this is the devil's plans for destruction for our church. The devil wants our church to be blind, mute, lame, suffering from heart disease, without compassion, and without mercy. He wants you to try to be a foot when you're really a hand. He wants us to live in disorder and division. He wants us to lose sight of our mission to lose lost people. He wants our church to be too comfortable to take risks. He wants us more concerned about the volume of our music than the fatherless. He wants us more concerned with the stupid haze in the room than the poor in our own backyards. He wants us to be more concerned with theological minutia than widows, orphans, destitute, human trafficking, the drug epidemic, and injustice. He wants us distracted Because if the devil can distract the church, he can destroy the church. If the devil can distract the church, he can destroy the church. One more time. If the devil can distract the church, he can destroy the church. What we have to do is too important to lack discipline as the body. It's too important to be distracted from our mission. The souls of your family, of your children, of 
of your coworkers, of your classmates, of your neighbors hang in the balance of our ability to stay disciplined and to never be distracted, but to stay focused 110% on the mission that God has given us to save lost souls and to become disciples of his son, Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important. But if the devil can distract the church, hear me, the devil can destroy the church. The Holy Spirit gives us these things, power, love, and self-discipline, and he pours them out on us in abundance. When we know God as our Father, then we know that his children have access to the unlimited power of our Father. We have access to the Holy Spirit. We have at our disposal power and love and self-discipline in abundance. He's gifted it to us. The question is whether or not we will live in it, whether or not we will accept it, whether or not we will embrace it. All of the wicked plans that the devil has for your life and the devil has for this church are answered fully and completely in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and in a holy, spotless, blameless, perfect Father. They're all answered fully and completely. Which takes us to our commitment today. Our commitment today is this. I will relate to the Holy Spirit daily this week. As we get ready to close, this is a really great thing, but if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you can't relate daily to the Holy Spirit. You just can't. You have to know Jesus first. And so if you're here today and you have felt the cold sting of theft and death and destruction at the hand of Satan, but you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, then I'm encouraging you today to do that. When I close in prayer in a moment, say, God, I don't have it all together. I surrender. Come into my life. Give me a new life. And through that prayer, the Holy Spirit can come in. And as the Holy Spirit comes into your life through time and surrender, it doesn't happen overnight, but he brings you power, love, and self-discipline. He brings significance. He brings new growth. He brings a new life. And this new life doesn't mean a life of comfort because you will likely be asked to go to some very uncomfortable places. If you stick around here for any length of time, we're going to ask you to go to a third world country. And it doesn't mean safety because you likely will be asked to suffer for the cause. And it doesn't mean financial prosperity because God may ask you to give away everything you have. What it does mean is power, love, and self-discipline. It means eternal life. So as I close in prayer, if that's you today, just say, God, come in. Jesus, forgive me. Save me. Take over. Be my Lord, my owner. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today, for this group of people willing to come out here at 8.30 in the morning. I pray, Father, that as we get ready to go out of this place, we will not soon forget the power of your Holy Spirit and the ability and the opportunity that we have to live fully and completely in power, love, and self-discipline. In your name, amen.